All right, so as a lot of you folks know, I'm talking about breaking off generational curses, and uh, we've been doing it from, from the uh, life of David. So we're going to pause uh, today and, um, and next week, well, for the next three weeks, and we're just going to pause and sort of like pull back from the life of David and the construct that that gives us for the generational curse concept, and we're going to just pursue this from, a, uh, from an idea of identifying sin, living as a sinner with Christ um, who releases us from the bondage of sin uh, and what it means for the people of God to, to be free and how to engage our kids in regard to sin um, and in, in raising our children. So we're going to be talking a lot about that next week from Psalm 78. Today we're going to take sort of a, um, a systematic approach to the New Testament and looking at some places about sin in Scripture and what it means for us to walk in sin um, walk in sin, to walk in freedom from sin. Um, so as we said, we've been talking a lot about generational curses and David um, and his uh, engagement with his sons and the way that we see sin passed down and, and how it's repeated throughout the life of these, um, of these sons of his, three of whom die in a short, short span of time of only a few years. Last week we looked at the concept of idolatry and how when sin finds us, it's not actually about sin. It's, it's ultimately about idolatry. All of these words are, are sin description words in Scripture, um, but on some level they're all linked back to and empowered by idols. And we saw that from Exodus 20. We looked a lot at Exodus 20. And also we looked at Exodus 34. The way that sin works itself out in the life of the children of Israel. Um, that you should have no other gods before me. Don't form for yourself any graven images. Um, if you worship idols, then the iniquity that comes as a result of worshiping idols will be visited on, visited on generation, to so the third and fourth generation, or a blessing for a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. Right? That's what God says. So today we need to go through the concept of this idolatry thing. Just, again, real quick, leading up to where we're going to be in the New Testament today. Idols promise two things. You'll be like God and you will not surely die. It's what the serpent promised Eve uh, when he deceived her. You will be like God, you will not surely die. All idols say those same things. Idols start off giving you what you think you want, giving you what you ask for. You want to have this feeling over here. You want to have this experience over here. You want to have this relationship over here. You want to step into this realm over here. Fine, it'll give you what you want at the beginning. Idols begin by giving everything and asking for nothing. I mean, they give it away for free. But as you live as an idol worshiper, everything twists, and it completely changes 180 degrees to where idolatry owns and destroys people, and idols end up taking everything and giving nothing which is exactly what we see in the life of the children of Israel. It's what we can see in the lives of ourselves when we turn to idols too. What idols are actually after isn't you. Idols are after your kids. In the scriptures, idolatry is always for the sake of destroying children, ultimately. I mean, don't get me wrong. The enemy wants to kill you too. You're somebody's child though, right? Um, So idolatry is actually after children when it comes down to it. You see it again and again. We looked at the three major idolatry figures in the Old Testament. All three of those things sought the sacrifice of children, either through death or through prostitution. And so it's this this horrific cycle, this horrific intaking of all of the goodness in life that God intends for a person and destroying it. And so when it comes to sin and when it comes to living in victory, And in freedom from the bondage of sin, you've got to understand this isn't about you. This is about your kids. And I know there's some of you here who are single or who aren't married, right? The scriptures speak of kids in a whole lot broader fashion than just having biological babies, right? I mean, we, we, spiritual children, right? Spiritual engagement with things is is, is as effective and, and, and good in the community of God as anything else. So we're talking about physical children, absolutely. We're also talking about the way that God fits his family of God together. Who we are matters. How we live affects other people. My sin affects you. Your sin affects me. It's how we live together in the body of Christ. Idols are ultimately after the sacrifice of children. 
when it comes down to it. They're ultimately after the next generation. That's who they're going for. So I think that what God is looking for, what he's always been looking for, is a generation willing to not live for itself. A generation willing to live for the one coming after it. Remember that horrific passage in Judges 2 where the people of God have been brought into the promised land and God has enabled them to clear it out. They could have cleared it all out if they wanted to, but they didn't. And then Judges 2 says, there arose a generation who did not know God. And that was not that generation's fault. It was the generation before it. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be that generation. Right? And I don't want Cornerstone to be part of that generation. There has got to be a people willing to stand up and say, we will lose today so that our kids can win tomorrow. Right? I think that's what God's calling us to. So, yeah, it's, it's a big thought, but it's, it's so integral to who it is that God is. If you think about it, I mean, God is a generation God in the way that he engages. He curses to three and four. He blesses to a thousand, right? I mean, this is God's interaction with, with humanity. So over the last few weeks, we've been looking at um, the concept of sin, mainly from the Old Testament. And some of you have asked very, very good questions about like, well, I mean, where does the sacrifice of Jesus play into this? And um, isn't it possible for like curses to not have power now because of what Jesus did on the cross. And to most of you, I've said, calm down, we're getting there. Um, and, uh, you know, but the story's, worth, the story's worth telling and worth listening to. So uh, that being said, I want to engage some of these things right up front about what sin is, the way that sin has been given to us, the purpose of the Old Testament and the law, and how we're meant to interact with it in a way that enables us to be free the way that God designs us to be free. And I do want to talk about curses and the way that curses find us, because I think that the New Testament speaks to it every bit as strongly as the Old Testament does. It just uses very different language. And, um, uh, and it's good language, like it's the kind of language that we oftentimes talk in. What I'm trying to get away from is this concept of that's how it used to be then, this is how it is now. I think these concepts are all linked together, and certainly God deals with people under the old covenant in a certain way. People deals with people under the new covenant in a certain way. But what has not happened is a complete eradication of the story of this so that we can live the story of this. No, 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 no. You know, we're not going to go that route to where we're living modalistically with the scriptures. Um, this whole big story, has you can find Jesus on every page of the Old Testament, right? And you can find Judaism on every page of the New Testament. So let's let this thing be what it is. Tie these things together. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Like I said, this is going to be a quick survey. Those of you who are theology nerds, um, the words I'm about to say might not matter at all to you, they will matter to a theology nerd. If you're not, you shouldn't feel the pressure to become one. It's just sometimes helpful if I tell theology nerds that, yes, I consider myself a dispensationalist. I'm just a very confused dispensationalist. And going to school only made me more confused. So um, I've been getting less confused over the course of the last 10 years. All right, so here we go. Uh, Romans 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin. By no means. Right? Now, the law is that thing that we've been studying for the last few weeks. Right? Exodus 20, the law, the Ten Commandments, idols, no idols, no graven images, generational iniquity will come as a result of this if you do this. Right? When, when Paul is speaking of the law, he is speaking of that concept. The, 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 the rules, the regulations, the things that the people of God agreed to with God to keep in order to live and be identified as the people of God. God, listen closely, God never intended for righteousness to come through the law. Righteousness has always come by faith, right? We live in this, again, this strange assumption that like, well, if people just kept the law perfectly, then they, then they would be, go to heaven when they died. No, no, no. The Pharisees kept the law perfectly, and Jesus was very clear about what was going on with them, right? Righteousness has always come by faith. Right? God interacted with his people here in this direction. He re- interacted with his people here in this direction. Old covenant, new covenant. Christ stands in between tying these two together, not expunging these two from each other. Christ is the story over both. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. How many of, of you are glad that you can know what sin is? 
to know how to please God. Right, I mean, this is a good thing. All of our hands should go up. We should all be very glad that we know what sin is. Right, I mean, it's like having that terrible disease, that, that disorder. I was on, uh, uh, I saw an Oprah <laughs> about it, where there was a little girl who could put her hand on a stove and not feel pain. You know, and her parents had to live this crazy life of com- constant vigilance, making sure she wasn't damaging herself because she couldn't feel pain. Her, the, the, the nerve receptors didn't work. I mean, what a, living without a knowledge of sin is like living like that. It's, it's, it is killing yourself without knowing it, right? So the law is meant to bring sin. Uh, the, the, the world today is big on saying the church makes me feel bad about myself. Well, that's not the church, my friend. I mean, don't get me wrong. The church shouldn't be a bunch of jerks that get together and, and yell at the world. I'm not, I'm not like that at all. Um, then the church is just being a bunch of jerks, and certainly we can do that. Um, but it's very important for us to know that God is righteous and we are not. That is a very important point to be drawn to. It is very important for an appropriate shame based on who God is and his standard and our missing of that mark. Like that, 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 that's an appropriate shame. That, that's an appropriate feeling. And Paul says, I could never have known sin if it wasn't for the law. The law pointed out to me who I was, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And don't get, don't, I just love this about Paul. Like Paul's not a, um, he's not just going to snow job you the whole time. Like Paul had an issue with covetousness. And he's telling his people about it. I would not have known about coveting, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead because it's not known, right? I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good because God's standards and our missing of them are the vehicle by which grace is ushered into the life of a person. You can't be saved from something that you don't know you need to be saved from. Right? Awareness of sin is very, very important. John 1, Jesus came with grace and truth. These two things together. Truth without grace is condemning. Grace without truth is not needed. Put the two together and you have redemption. But those two things are very, very necessary. So, verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Right? So God's standards, God's ways are what point out to us our missing the mark and say, hey, you are falling short. You are a sinner. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, Paul says, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And that's not just a cop-out. Paul just saying, well, it's not me that's doing this. It's just sin within me. No, he's making a point here. God's standards are good. God's standards are right. It is sin in us, at work in us, because of our flesh. This is an important point. Because of our flesh, notice, he points it on our flesh. Who is he not blaming here for his sin? The devil, right? He is not blaming the devil for his sin here. He is blaming himself, his flesh. God's standards are right and good. I do not measure to these standards. That word that is between those two things is sin. And me knowing that I'm a sinner is how I receive the grace of God, right? But this is an issue with me. This is not an issue with the enemy. This is not an issue with this terrible world that I live in making decisions for me. And suddenly, uh, you know, I tell God, well, God, if you just hadn't put me here, then everything would be better. And then I live my life for, for heaven and waste the one that I have here, just hoping to get out of here someday. You know, no. And that's not that at all. I know that nothing good dwells in me, verse 18, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but I can't carry it out. 
For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So in other words, when I do the things that I don't want to do, when I see God's standards but live according to my own, and by the standards of my own flesh, then it is sin working itself out within me. Right? And so now my identity has shifted. I have now chosen against who God has called me to be and have begun self-defining and being who it is that I think that I want to be. Flip over to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises are made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Like, is the law working against what God has promised us through the goodness of our faith in Christ? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ Jesus, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. The owner, he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by this, his father. In the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So here's the deal. In the old covenant, when it came to generational iniquity, if your father committed generational iniquity, if your father committed iniquity, right, if he turned against God in regard to an idol and lived in the iniquity from it, that iniquity and its results would be passed on to you through the third and fourth generation. The person who could break it would be the father, right? Otherwise, this is simply the way the government of God worked according to that time. For people who loved him, and worshiped him, the blessing goes on for a thousand generations. There's an implication there that you're passing on the love that you have for God. In Christ, that locked in to the iniquity principle, gone. Gone. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what it is that you struggle with today because of where you came from. If you want freedom, it's yours. If you want freedom, it is yours. There is no spiritually generational link between where you came from, who you are now, and what you are forming your own children to be that demands that this thing has to be in my life or has to be in the life of my children. That whatever this sin, whatever this curse is that owned the people before me and that sometimes owns me now and that I'm terrified is going to own my own children, that doesn't have to have power. That is an old covenant mindset. The new covenant in Christ says that this headship, like passed on iniquity principle that would work itself out through the generations in the old covenant, in the new covenant in Christ has been eradicated. That principle is no longer binding. It's not there. If you want to be free, you can be free. If you want freedom, you can have freedom. 
And you can declare that to the father that gave birth to you, right? And you can give that blessing to your children and watch the blessing continue down through your lineage, right? Generational curses, generational curses, we could very much take that word generational under Christ and boom, throw it out the window. And instead call these things like family sin, which we all deal with, and which gets passed down through all kinds of crazy ways. Now, I do think that there is still an imprint of these things on our spirit. I think that there are issues, that there are things, that there is sin that you and I deal with that comes from where our parents come from and how we were raised and what it means for us to be who we are based on our family systems and the things that our families engage and don't engage. Right? There are ways that we engage this, and we're going to talk about that. But what you need to know is that the binding principle that comes from Exodus chapter 20 of this iniquity will find its way out in you is null and void in Christ. Like Jesus replaced that with a better law. If you think back to Romans 7, the text goes on to continue. Um, Paul gets really mad at himself and he says, um, let me get it, downloading information. Um, Wretched man that I am, who, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, now listen to the words. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. From what? The law of sin and death. Jesus didn't come to eradicate the old law as much as give the better law. The old law is still important for teaching us sin, for teaching us who we are in light of who God is. The old law isn't actually about all the crazy regulations and everything that it looks like it is. The old law is about this. God is holy. God is pure. God is righteous and set apart from everything else. That's the overriding statement of the old law. The new law in Christ says that you can be free and you are not condemned. And we walk in the new grace that is Christ. Apart from this government that did work itself out, that we see in David, that David alone had the authority to push back against. No more. Today, at Cornerstone, if you want to be free, you can be free. You can live apart from the things that want to own you. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians 10. And from there, we're going to spend the rest of our time. The scriptures, the book of 1 John particularly, teaches that there's three things that war against the children of God. The world, the devil, and the flesh. Right? These three things come against the children of God. The world, the devil, and the flesh. Right? World, devil, and flesh. So when you're encountering sin, when you're engaging it around you, it's coming from one of these three places. Right? It's coming from one of these three places. It's either going to be from the world, the flesh, or the devil. Those three things are the way that sin finds us. Chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. When these three things come against the children of God, when these three things, in our world today, the devil gets it first, right? The devil made me do it. It's, it's our, it's our go-to place is, is the enemy. If, if there's something sin-ish about us or in us, we go to the enemy first. It's his fault. He did it. He made me do it. All right? The second place that we oftentimes go is the world. You know, well, you just don't understand what my life's like. If you would understood, if you could understand my world, then you would see why I do what I do. The last place that we go is ourselves, where it's just like, well, 
I'm a sinner, and I'm trying to live free, but it's not working. That's the last place that we go. We need to completely flip all three of those things. Right? Because in the New Testament, particularly, what we see is that it is our flesh that wars against us. It is our old man that tries to rear itself up against the new person that God has made us to be. And I think that when it comes to these concepts, that we make it more complicated than it is. When it comes to family curses, family sin, family iniquity, um, it is very easy for us to get hung up on the deep emotion that comes with the family curses. Go ahead, just think of your family curse and tell me there's not some strong emotion attached to it. That if you brought that up at Thanksgiving table, that something wouldn't go wrong. You know? So what about Uncle so-and-so and what he did back then? Anyone? You know? Well, suddenly, you know, the turkey doesn't taste as well and Grandma's got to go to the bathroom. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. This concept and the emotion of it and the depth of it, it's all very real. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I think that that emotion and the insanity of what our family curses and family sin and family iniquities, um, it doesn't have to be as bad as it is. But it will require a lot of work. And, and here's, here's what I mean by that. So these three things war against the children of God, particularly our flesh. Now understand three things right up front. Number one is that your spirit has been purchased and sealed. Right? Number two, your heart has been made new, soft, and steadfast. In Christ, in the new covenant itself, and Jeremiah 31 tells us this. Um, like, in Christ, your spirit purchased and sealed. Your heart has been made new and soft and steadfast. But your mind, that's a different story. Your head, your head's up for grabs. Am I right? Right? And then it works itself backward. When you start to lose your mind to sin, your heart becomes hard. Right? Now, we can argue about eternal security until we're blown in the face. We're not going to do that today. Okay, next. So the progression that I see in linking Old Covenant with New Covenant is this. We see generational iniquity at work very, very strongly. And generational iniquity is linked to idolatry. And idolatry is a spiritual principle that's played itself down through all, all of human history. When I think about idolatry in the Old Testament, and the way that idolatry translates itself to the New Testament, it is this word that comes to mind. It is this word that is the tie. When the New Testament speaks of strongholds, it is talking about the idols, the deep things that own you. This is about you, not the devil. Look at it again in 2 Corinthians 10. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I present myself, that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Paul has an issue here with these crazy Corinthians. All right, this is the second letter that he's written them. And they're getting tired of hearing from him. Because every time that he writes them, he, he just, he, he blasts them with both barrels. You know, like you're doing this and this and this and you're crazy over here and your worship services are going to hell in a handbasket and you treat each other like crap and, and somebody is sleeping with his mother-in-law and that's not good. So, like, you need to get all this stuff out of there and write yourselves before God. And the Corinthians write him back and just say, Paul... Yeah, you sure do talk bold in your letters, Paul. We got these other guys that we listen to. They talk a whole lot better than you do. You know, why don't you come here and say this to my face? And Paul says, look, you don't want me to come there and say it to your face. Because when I come there and say it to your face, then you're really going to have a problem with me because what you're going to find out is the same way I talk to you in this letter is the way I'm going to talk to you when I see you in person. And they're like, oh, big bad Paul. And he's like, darn right, big bad Paul. You're going to find out just how bad big and bad Paul is, right? Even though Paul was probably just a little short, ugly guy. Um, that's history. That's not Jay. Um, <laughs> who couldn't see well. So like anytime I picture Paul, I picture him squinting like this. 
you know, just railing on people. What they're doing, they're, they're accusing Paul, they're accusing Paul of, of, of possessing his spiritual authority wrongly. And Paul finds himself here in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 having to defend his apostleship. And then he defends himself again later on in chapter 10. But he does take this small break here at the beginning of chapter 10 to talk about this idea of like the source of this stuff, the source of this iniquity. And he stops to say, look, you're accusing me of walking in the flesh. I'm telling you that I'm not walking in the flesh. But let's stop for a second and talk about the flesh. If the flesh was present, here's what I would do. Verse 3. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul says this is a major issue. Yes, absolutely. So much so that he calls it a stronghold. Right? A stronghold. Like, he is pointing out a big thing. Flesh-based stuff. And the way that these people are coming at him is from their sinfulness. And their sinfulness that they're coming at him with is a flesh-based response that is a really big, problematic sin in the life of these people. And he is talking about a something. This isn't like sin in general. No, this is a something. It's the same thing that he uses in Hebrew 12. Yes, I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews when he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. It's not just sin. He doesn't just say, let us lay aside sin and run faster. No, he says, let us lay aside the sin. He is pointing out a thing, a something, greed, covetousness, lust, anger, right? These deep things, something big, something there that you can point with your finger and say, that, that is a stronghold. This thing owns me. And it's that that Paul says, lay it aside. And it's that that Paul's talking about here in the strongholds concept. It is this big, idle, empowered, iniquitous thing that owns you and that probably owned the family before you and that wants to own your children too. But if you want to be free of it today, you can. You can. There is freedom in Jesus' name. The question is, is how does that freedom work itself out? Look back at your text. Don't look at your text. Um, look, Paul, I mean, Paul is like this, he's just this insanely spiritual guy, right? I mean, Paul talks about some of the craziest spiritual concepts that you're going to read about. Oh, I was sitting around one day and I was writing and suddenly I was transported to the third heaven. I got to go past the first two heavens that just the normal people have to sit at. I got to go to the third heaven to, I've never been to any of the heavens, you know? And, and Paul has these in, insane supernatural experiences and so much of his writing, like in Colossians and in Philippians, is so very spiritual and ethereal. And uh, in, in, Ephes in Ephesians, he gets very esoteric, you know, very like this is how your heart can change if you live like this together as a community of faith. When it comes to the Corinthians, who are, these are his sin-based books, right? He's writing to people who are, like, really dealing with some serious iniquity in their midst. Where he points them back to time and time again is their head. It's their head. The Corinthians have a problem with their mind. It's not this sort of, like, out there, speak in tongues better and it'll go away. You'll be so, suddenly more holy, right? Heal more people, have more miracles in your midst, and then you'll purify yourself. You know, not, not at all. But boy, we the church sure do love those things. Right? And we can have all kinds of iniquity in our midst, but as long as we can come over here and paint Jesus to look good and do all kinds of fun stuff and have services and whatnot and get together and hoorah and off we go, this thing can sort of sit back here and fester, but we wonder why there's not actual spiritual power. We wonder why this is actually a show. And it's because this thing hasn't been dealt with. You know what God says to his people in Amos? I hate your show. I hate your performances. I hate your music. I hate your clothes. I hate this temple that you made me. Rend your hearts, not your garments. I don't care about how bad you say you feel. Show me. Show me. 
And we can put on the big performance that we want to. Individually speaking, we can do all the right things and say all the right things. But until we get real about what is going on in our own personal lives, in the lives of our marriages, in the lives of our key friendships, in our parenting relationships, until we start getting real with each other, calling a spade a spade, and being honest with each other about it in the safety of a loving community together, then we're going to be stuck. And we'll perform, and we'll make things look good, but honestly, does anybody want that? That is so inauthentic and non-real. But that's going to require some hard work because where Paul takes the Corinthians is to their head. You've got a problem up here. Up here. This is where it's at. And Paul knows this because he knows his scriptures. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds, right? So here it is, right? That big supernatural power. Let's get the power and use the power to do big spiritual supernatural things. Except that the next thing that Paul tells them that they're going to use their spiritual power against is their own head. Because we destroy with these things two things, arguments, right? And the second thing is vain imaginations. And the King James gets it right. Lofty opinions, too soft. Vain imaginations. Arguments and vain imaginations. In other words, our ability to argue with ourselves and talk ourselves around the iniquity. That's what our weapons can destroy is our ability to argue with ourselves to talk to ourselves i mean self-talk plays into this right when we give into iniquity it's basically because we talk ourselves into it right if you have the holy spirit inside of you there's a war going on i don't want to do this but i do want to do this but i don't want to do this but i really do want to do this and so here I am talking to myself, arguing with myself, well, if I do this, this is what will happen. If I don't do this, this is what will happen. After a while, that's, that self-talk, it becomes almost completely um, unseen, completely normal, to the point where we don't know we're having the self-talk. And this is where community is so important, because then I can say to, to my brother and be like, you realize like, you're talking yourself into this. Like, you say you don't want to be greedy on one hand, but you realize your whole life is about greed. I love you, buddy. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's so, we don't see ourselves well in these spots. I'm getting ahead of myself. Vain imaginations. We create a picture in our minds that is not real of who we are. We create a picture up here that says, my, my identity as Jay is this, and that iniquity is part of that identity. That is a vain imagination. And suddenly, a stronghold is there through my self-talk and my own warped identity of myself. And suddenly, my mind is wrong. My mind is off, which is what the next sentence is about, right? Look at your text. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against what? The knowledge of God. So in my head... I know who God is. In my head, I know who he is and what he said and what it is that he wants from me. But there's this other thing over here. There's this self-talk, my own arguments about this with me. There's this vain imagination, this picture that I randomly have of myself that's been built for me that's completely wrong. And these two things are beating down my knowledge of God. They're beating down who God is to the point where I can have this iniquity, right? I can engage this iniquity. This iniquity can reap a negative consequence in my life. And I can say to God, God, why, where are you? Did you hear what I just said? Th- this iniquity, I can self-talk myself into it. I can reshape through a vain imagination my identity that allows this iniquity to be present in my life. And I can live in the iniquity. And then sin always has consequences, right? And then I can reap a consequence from that. And instead of looking at myself and my own self-talk and my vain imaginations, where do I go first when something bad happens? God, why did you let this happen? My knowledge of God has been beaten down, which is why Paul says next sentence, therefore, we take every thought captive to Christ. Where is he talking about? Is this a spiritual thing? Is this a spirit thing? No, he's talking about your mind. He's talking about your head. Things are going wrong here. That's why every thought, it's not every, it's not every spiritual intuition, 
Every thought, the way your mind works, needs to be taken captive to Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. It's a mind-based thing. The whole of the scriptures teaches this. The effects of, strong, of strongholds. You can see this, as you'll see. I did a study on it. Number one is a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind. When a stronghold is allowed to have entrance into your life and to sit there in your head, it can produce a reprobate mind. Reprobate means this. Right is wrong and wrong is right. Right, right is wrong and wrong is right. When a stronghold is allowed to be present in here, it can completely change the moral code to where right is wrong and wrong is right. A reprobate mind is the result of a stronghold that's just left to sit there. A double mind. A double mind is there to where, right, the performance over here, the iniquity over here, right? My family over here, uh, we look good when we go out. My family comes home and we look like this. I am double-minded. I am unstable. I know that in my head, I need to be like this here, and I need to be like this here. This is church, Jay. This is work, Jay. Right? This is out with the family in public, Jay. This is home with the family, Jay. Double-minded. If you are a double-minded person, there is a stronghold in your life and the problems in your head. An old mind. Right? An old mind. In other words, I think the way that I used to think. I find myself thinking in ways that are just like, where did that come from? Where did that come from? Or when you hear yourself, not, not about like little cute things, but about deep things. When you hear yourself talking like your parents about bad stuff about yourself or about them, you need to start looking for an old mind. When you're like, anybody else ever get freaked out by that? They're so like, whoa, that was my dad. I love my dad. I don't, he goes to church here, so I want to, yeah, like, whoa, hey, where did that come from? Or there's that, there's that phrase, you know, that, that was a, a tripwire. And suddenly what they said to me is now coming out of my own mouth, and it's very negative and very negative consequences. Like, where did that come from? Very possible that a stronghold is in place, and you're thinking with your old mind. A lazy mind. It can produce a lazy mind to where you just don't use your brain. Right? I mean, I mean it's just, just, just sort of like... We just don't use our brain. It just isn't there. The problem with this is that kids are the ones that get the bad rap for having a lazy mind. You realize those kids go to school six hours a day, five days a week, right? They're using their head a whole lot more than most adults. <laughs> it's the, the, the lazy mind is one that just sort of checks out, kick it into autopilot, right? Things just happen, life goes by me. And when that is happening, when life is just happening, and I'm not analyzing things, I'm not thinking about things, I'm not looking at motivations, I'm not engaging things, it, I've got a lazy mind. There might be a stronghold. Lastly is a weak mind. A weak mind. In other words, what the enemy wants to put in there can get in there pretty easily because it's weak. It's not strong. Right? Th these are five major mind effects that we can see down through the whole of Scripture that when sin is allowed entrance, it goes for your brain. Folks, sin cannot have your spirit. Jesus has sealed that, right? Sin is not allowed to have your heart. The effects of sin can make your heart hard. But sin is not allowed to have that, right? Your heart can be steadfast before God. Right? You can have a heart that is rooted and grounded in the love of Christ that the enemy has no right to at all. Your mind is the battleground. If you have strongholds, in did this thing just go out? Sorry. If you have family curses, if you've got iniquity that just keeps finding itself in, it's finding it in, it's getting it in, it's getting it in, where you need to go is your head. It's your, it's, it's your mind. Lofty opinions, right? vain imaginations, self-talk that is not of the Holy Spirit. Paul draws the attention of the Corinthians to these things. We desire to destroy strongholds. Those strongholds are in the battlefield of your brain. Sin happens first here. That There is a something that happens here where it walks itself out. There is a decision that's made in your mind. 
that walks itself out. And when that, defi- when that decision becomes so familiar that you don't realize you're deciding it, that's when you know one of these five things is happening. And when one of these five things is happening, it just becomes a repetitive cycle because our thinking is wrong. Lastly, take your Bible, turn to Romans 12, just back a few pages. Joy, you and your team can come back up, please. Um, Paul says, <coughs> excuse me, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By what? By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind, that you may test and discern what is good and right and acceptable before God. Listen to these words from Paul again, Ephesians 4. This is not what you've learned in Christ, right? Talking about iniquity. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, right? So put off the old man, the old mind, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Paul says, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to renewing your mind, I was always taught that renewing your mind is the reason that you memorize scripture. That, um, sure, you're a kid, you might not want to memorize these scriptures, but if you memorize these scriptures, they'll come back to you when you sin, and, uh, or when you want to sin, and then you can quote the scriptures, and then you won't sin, which I found to be zero helpful. Um, now, I do really like all the scripture memory that I They were right about that. Um, like, I'm really thankful for it. But when it comes, like, it's just, a, I don't think it works like that. Right? This isn't like a, um, it's not a Bible bullet that you load in your gun. You know, so, like, here comes a temptation to lie. And, and here's Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Kapow! And then the lying is like, oh, I'm free! In fact, I'm really disappointed that that's not the way that it works. Because it would be really helpful. <laughs> the, the thing about the, the, the renewing of the mind, if you listen to what Paul just said here in Ephesians 4, he says to put off the old self, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to consider yourself in Christ. Put off the old self. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And consider yourself as being in Christ. When the enemy comes at you, he comes at you with deceit and accusation. Those are both mind-based attacks. Right? It is to get you to something, believe something wrong about God or believe something wrong about yourself. And the renewing of the mind, is, it's not... I mean, Scripture memory is great, and the Bible's great. Count me in. I love it. You know, but when it comes down to it, they're not just magic Bible bullets to help you escape from sin. The s- scriptures are the story of God's love for you and how you can be transformed to be who it is that God actually made you to be, someone in deep, intimate relationship with God Almighty. And that comes through the blood of Christ. And so to be renewed in your mind means that you Think about you in the new way that God made you to think about you. And yes, you will need the scriptures for that. But you will also need the body of Christ. You will also need your own flesh to submit to what it is that God says. Right? This isn't just like a spiritual transaction thing that happens. So where holiness becomes just managing to stay away from sin long enough that I eventually die and get out of here. Right? Where holiness becomes an engagement with God whereby intimacy is happening and there's a love relationship. And it's, it's not about escaping sin as much as being who God made me to be. It's not about getting away from the nastiness of all the bad things about myself as much as receiving God's words from me. This is renewal. Right? And Paul, he keeps saying it time and time again. Like the, he says to the Corinthians, look, I don't care if you do the right thing for the wrong reason. Motivation matters. So renew your mind. Get on God's mind. Allow God's mind to tell you who you are. 
And when God's mind is defining who you are, now you are living with a new mind. And when you live with his mind as opposed to your mind, then you can live a life that is free. Not weak, not reprobate, not old, not lazy, right? But a mind that views who you are through God's mind. And then you will be who it is that God made you to be. And that is freedom. Let's pray. God, thanks for your truth to us, for the beauty of your word to us, for the life that we have in Jesus. Make us free, God. For every person here, I pray for freedom. In Jesus' name, I pray for a true renewal of their mind. That is not like just this simple like intellectual cognitive process, but that is an actual transaction, not with sin, but with you, whereby we sacrifice how we think and we receive how you think. Where that self-talk, that defeating self-talk that leads us to strongholds and idolatry goes away. Where those vain imaginations that have us self-defining, where those things go away. And where your communication to us is defining us. And where your words of life to us are defining us. Where your application of your blood time and time again is setting us free again and cleansing us to be who it is that you made us to be. God, shift our minds. Walk us to a true renewal of that mind with you. Thank you for the freedom that we have from generational iniquity. Thank you for the fact that today is a new day and tomorrow is a new day and, and every day that we have with you begins with new mercies. Thank you for your grace and love. You're such a good God. Yeah, we worship you. We love you. Thank you for freedom in Jesus. Lead us into you. God, renew our minds in you. Renew our minds with you, with your word, with your presence, with the beauty of who you name us to be, to where it's about us receiving your words by faith, where it's us walking with you in faith, where it's about us continually moving toward you, more deeply into you, intimate with you, knowing you, enraptured by you, so that this newness of mind, we receive that time and time again from you. God, for each of my brothers and sisters here today, I pray for freedom in Jesus' name, freedom from bondage that wants to destroy. We declare, God, your truth in this place, that what you say is what we receive. Now, the words of the Gospels there where that guy was struggling, he says, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. God, I pray that you would bridge those gaps for us. Lead each of us into deeper faith in you to receive more fully who you name us to be, that we might walk and live in that newness of mind. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.